Welcome to Foibles, where my mom and I record conversations we have anyway. I'm Zoe. I'm Zoe's mom. Oh yeah, that's right. I have a name. It's Rita. (laughs) Hello, Foibles listeners. This is Rita and Zoe back again. We are today going to take a look at the writer, director, producer, Preston Sturgis. We have no idea how long this is going to be. We do know it's not going to be like any of our epic ones, like Flynn or Valentino or any of those people, but it may end up being a couple of parts. We don't know yet. He was an interesting guy, had an interesting life, and did some of the, I would say, canon-level, pantheon-level films of the golden era of Hollywood. He had some stinkers, had some mediocre ones, but those few that are excellent, that are aces, that are the top, they just can't be beat. They're unique, they're artistically visionary, yet entertaining at the same time. And touch on a very important social element, so that's part that interests me as well. Yes, yes, our little socialist here. Mm -hmm. Definitely. He has a very interesting viewpoint, and he comes from a very interesting background. Just real quick, Sturgis was born in 1898, He died in 1959, so he was not an old man at the time, but he sure, if you look online at pictures, he sure looks old. He's one of our great artists that we're talking about here who was also uh, an alcoholic. As far as we know, he probably may have used drugs as well, but he was really an alcoholic. That kind of drinking really ages you fast, so it's very sad to see what he looked like and how he felt at the end of his life, but... Prior to that, he had a really interesting life, very lively. He was a very lively character and a very complex one. So it'll be very, it's interesting because he's complex and then the work he produces is also complex. He doesn't just adhere to one side or the other of any question, of any personality trait. He seems to kind of very contradictorily bring them all together, wouldn't you say? I would. Also, the fact that we started out knowing the couple of his films that we think are just incredible, like classic, iconic movies. We expected a, like, I I think we had um, an expectation about the rest of his films. (laughs) We thought they would be as good or close to as good, and it really runs the gamut to stinkeroo to pretty good. And, of course, we will inform you of all of these and let you know which ones you must see. And uh, then you, the rest you can take at your own risk. Yeah, they, they still have interesting elements in them or interesting choices. Let's start out with uh, I first. I've got to say this again a million times in this podcast, but I first saw Preston Sturgis at the Repertory Theater in Cleveland, Ohio, in the late 1970s, early 1980s when I was going there. Thank you, Sheldon Wygott, for your amazing cinematic knowledge and sharing. He was the director of that uh, repertory theater. Is now passed on, so he's in cinema heaven, I hope. I saw, I believe Sullivan's Travels was the first one, which really is the pantheon-level iconic film. Sturgis really inspired and influenced so many filmmakers, but the most obvious one today are the Coen brothers. Just to give you a little reference point, during the movie of Sullivan's Travels, a made-up pretend film was mentioned called Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? Which then becomes the Coen brothers' Oh Brother, Where Art Thou? So it's their homage to Sturgis and the setting of of Sullivan's Travels. So we'll talk more about the parallels, I'm sure, when we discuss the film. Also, throughout the Coen's work, you'll see stylistic elements, you'll see plot elements, you'll see names, you'll see all kinds of things referenced. For example, um, 
Sturgis did a film called Hail Conquering Hero. So a few years ago, the Coen brothers did a film. Hail Caesar? Hail Caesar. Caesar Conquering Hero. Okay. Right. Hail Caesar. And uh, so you'll see these things, uh, the, the slapstick comedy, the crazy talking over each other, uh, various little scenes. You, you just as you keep watching the Coens, you begin to see more and more how, uh, how much they love Sturgis and how much they are indebted to him and acknowledging their debt to him. So definitely resonates today. So hopefully I don't start talking like one of Sturgis's characters because I get very excited about these films and uh, I, I do think he's an interesting guy. And I know that uh, I've been told that I was got very excited when we were talking about Rudolph Valentino. Because <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> I love him so much. I guess I didn't get as excited. I mean, I was excited and interested with like Marlena Dietrich and Errol Flynn. I think they're fascinating. I love a lot of their work. But I don't like love them from my heart. The way I love Rudy from my heart. They're problematic people and complex Really Really problematic. Rudy, yeah. I mean, he had his problems, uh, yeah. for sure. But I don't know. I found him very lovable. He's probably the best person we have talked about, <laughs> yeah, so true. it makes sense. Um, although, you know, we, we're, I, feel, I think we feel tenderly about Marilyn Monroe. Oh, very tenderly. I, yeah, I mean, I, de- I definitely love her a lot. Um, and then also, I don't, I don't love Preston Sturgis. I do think he's a very difficult person. And, and he was, I'm going to, we'll warn you right up front, um, there was uh, domestic violence involved in his life. He was not real, he was not great to women, generally speaking, but um, not so horrible. And we're not going to go yeah. into it into, you know, gruesome detail or anything like that. So don't worry about that. So that kind of thing. Yeah, but he, I love his work. He sounds like a jackass, but yeah, yeah. but then his art complicates the picture, and we'll talk more about that too. Right, like, right. Do you love the art or the artist? And that's always coming up. And you know, I th- I just say it depends on the case. Yeah, there are some people in my my heart, my gut, my body says no. I will share with you one of those people's Woody Allen. Uh, but then there are other people. My heart, my gut says, Ugh, but you know what? To me, the art over comes that, and I have to admit, one of those people is Roman Polanski. Yeah, so I, I noticed how Sul- Sullivan's Travels, The Lady Eve, and The Palm Beach Story, which are kind of the, the top three famous ones. They're the central uh, core of his reputation, and they were the most successful of his films in terms of, no, well, he had some pretty successful films, but I think in terms of critical and popular reception. Popular, thank you. I couldn't come up with that word popular reception and then certainly ongoing like as time went on yeah. they proved to be the most popular and, and I guess that's yeah, what I mean maybe not exactly at the time but yeah. certainly the reputation of today uh, lingers on because a lot of his films most people hasn't even heard of but anyway what about you Zoe? Um, I didn't know anything about Sturgis at all and I was still even not very aware of him as like a, a director but you showed me I think Sullivan's Travels first and it was really striking because there's certain things about it that are just very unusual and very refreshing and the whole package of the great dialogue, the great writing, et cetera, et cetera. And then we watched The Lady Eve a while later and I was like, yep, that's great. And then um, Barbara Stanwyck stars in that one. Yep. And that so was part of our Barbara Stanwyck series. So at the time I watched it and I was like, oh yeah, that's one of the best, you know, um, sort of romantic farces that I've seen. Screwball uh, comedy. Yeah, screwball maybe. comedy. And then we rewatched it when we did our um, our podcast series on Barbara Stanwyck, and so I was really able to like look at it in a deeper 
richer, more appreciative way. And then we watched the rest of the films for this. Yeah, he didn't have... Kind uh, of in rapid succession. Yeah, he didn't have so many films that it was impossible for us to look at them or that it was... Yeah, so it was worthwhile, except for the very last... Well, we'll get to it, but the very last one we didn't watch because it was supposedly such so bad that uh, we just didn't want to subject ourselves to it. So just to talk a little bit about his life, which was quite interesting. As I said, he was born in 1898. His birth name was Edmund Preston Biden. Uh, and his mother's name was Mary Dempsey. And Dempsey is an Irish name, so she had Irish background. And how she was married, uh, she married five times. Her second husband was Edmund Biden, so that was the father. And she hated his flipping guts. Hmm. And so she refused to call her son Edmund, because he was obviously junior, so she called him Preston. So that's how Preston became his permanent first name. Okay. And she divorced her husband in 1902. Then she fairly shortly after that, married her third husband, and his name was Solomon Sturgis. And Solomon Sturgis was a stockbroker, and he lived in Chicago. He was a solid citizen, very stable guy. I, don't, I won't necessarily say that every person who has five spouses is sort of unstable or flighty, but Mary, Mary Dempsey was. She was pretty out there for the times particularly but even today i think we kind of see her maybe as a bohemian kind of lifestyle so she marries this very uh, stable guy and preston loved him loved him so much and solomon ended up uh, legally adopting him so sturgis became then his last name and he kept it and because he loved solomon to the end of his life because he offered him stability he offered him safety uh, he offered him affection and some and attention i mean it wasn't like an amazing father in terms of throwing a ball in the backyard, but I mean, he got real attention and real security. Basically, Solomon Sturgis was like a real dad to him. Gave him the safety and affection that he craved and that nobody really had ever given him in his life. I mean, I'm sure his mother must have loved him on some level, as all parents do, but she was very self-centered. She really saw herself as kind of an artistic person, but it doesn't appear that she actually was an artist, but she loved the art, she loved culture, and she really kind of, I don't know, I kind of like this about her. She was anti-institutions, so she didn't send him to school, huh. which, you know, is not could be okay, but then he didn't get any, like, a governess or any kind of other education. I don't know how he learned how to read. Interesting. But anyway, it was one of those uh, things where she was offering him an enriched environment in a way where they went to museums, they went to the theater, they went to opera, they went, you know, culture, culture, culture. That's what she was a culture vulture. And what happened then with Sturgis, and it's very interesting to see in his films, he did end up absorbing a lot. He was an intelligent person. He really absorbed a lot of these influences, these ideas, and he hated them at the same time. He hated mm. anything that smacked of culture. But at the same time, he was a snob who disliked um, low comedy and humor. But his movies are rife with both at the yeah. same time. So it's so interesting, which is one, one of the things that makes his film so unique. On one hand, they're very intellectual movies and politically engaged, etc. in a lot of cases. And then on the other hand, they're very populist movies, which we can talk more about. Well, not even just populist, but popular. They were low comedy, mm -hmm. people falling down, slipping on banana peels, mm -hmm. you know, hitting their heads, all that kind of stuff. Also the political, as you were saying, but also 
in the in the language the language is snappy kind of quote-unquote street dialogue but it is peppered with references and words and mm-hmm. ideas that are actually very what we call highbrow mm-hmm. in, intellectual and so but he didn't homogenize them it wasn't like they they came together into a, a, a comfortable seating with each other and therefore he was in the middle it wasn't that bo- both parts exist in the same universe, but in but in their own spheres and their own ways. Does that make sense? What I'm saying? And I guess I, I see that, and maybe that's the way I look at it. Because when you look at his life, that's how he lived his life. He never melded. He never became homogenized in the middle. He never was comfortable or happy with himself. I I don't think or his life. And so um, he lived in these kind of both of the things existing at the same time, but in his case, rather than creating something that just worked, his life only worked intermittently. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. yeah, and bursts and yeah, fits and right. He never, he never really was seemed to be very comfortable in in life. But the roots of that is in this stable dad, stable stepdad, who became his real dad, uh, legal in in the law is what I mean, and then this mother who was kind of feckless. She spent a lot of money, but she got it because she married these rich guys. So, yeah, so they had a lot of money the entire time. For No, not for the entire time, but uh, always went up and down, but she didn't care. Um, She wasn't looking after uh, stability or safety for him. He didn't go to school, yet she was educating him in all these very, very artistic ways. Uh, And he really resented her a lot, but yet he also really was dependent on her and very enmeshed with her. And loved her, I'm sure, as well. Um, so it was it was a difficult relationship. It was enriching, but it was also damaging at the same time. So basically, after she married Solomon, I, and why she married him, I don't know. I, probably because she needed money. I, I, and the reason I say that is because she didn't want to live in Chicago, which is where Solomon lived. That's where his business was. Mm. And it's not like she had a business or a career or anything like that at that point. So she didn't want to live in Chicago. It was boring and, and bourgeois and not artistic enough for her. So she went on off to Europe with Preston. She took Preston off to Paris. Hmm. And so they hung out in Europe. And Solomon's living in Chicago. Okay. And one of the people that Mary met and who was a huge, huge influence on her was the dancer Isidore Duncan. Now, Isidore Duncan, is that a name that's familiar to people of your... You know, I'm not really sure because I learned it young because you were into dance, but if anybody knows anything about dance, they know about Isidore Duncan, but I don't know that it's a very common name otherwise. I would imagine, certainly from my generation, a fair number of people still knew who she was, and of course, you know, if I'm looking at my parents or whatever, it's a very common name. But Isidore Duncan was uh, a dancer who, um, she studied ballet, She, she did study dance, unlike what a lot of people say, but she wanted to develop dance that came from the soul, dance that was authentic, dance that rose from the body and the emotions. She, like many people at the time, were trying to throw off that Victorian uh, strictures back when she was young in the, at the turn of the 20th century. Dancers wore, I mean, I'm talking about theatrical dancers, not like... Social ne- dancing. Yeah. Uh, wore corsets mm. while they were dancing, even wow. in ballet. Wow. You know, so you couldn't bend at the waist and very, very stiff. They threw off the corset. And women were doing that generally. Coco Chanel was a huge influence there. She came in with her styles and women weren't wearing corsets and so forth. And being free and and being able to move and being comfortable. 
So Isadora uh, created her dance, and it's very interesting. We don't have, we have maybe like a three seconds or two seconds of Isadora dancing, and somebody was hiding in the bushes, and she was dancing at a garden party, and they, you can see it on YouTube. It's just tiny. I mean, it's, it doesn't give you any sense of her as a dancer. She never wanted to be filmed. She didn't trust film to be able to capture the essence of what she was doing because it was all about the soul. She's uh, one of the people who really brought in the idea of the Greeks and the purity of the Greeks and their, their form and their shapes and the draping. And so, you know, they would take on these diaphanous draperies and they would dance in what they felt was a very naturalistic way. And you'll see that in um, a lot of other dance pioneers, modern dance pioneers of the time. Now Isadora, she founded a school and what she did is all the girls who came to her school, she quote unquote adopted. And so they all took the last name of Duncan. Interesting. Yeah, and even until very recently, there was a, a Duncan who was still dancing and performing in the style of Isadora Duncan. And the thing about it is, if you look at these old movies, these silent movies and very early sound movies, you often, if you see a young woman dancing in white diaphanous uh, dress with like a, a circlet of flowers in her hair, and she's kind of jumping and throwing her arms up, maybe going down, maybe going on the ground, lifting her legs in kind of a bent position and hopping around. That is from Isadora. Now Isadora apparently was a phenomenal performer and that's really where it was. It wasn't in her technique or in her amazing movements. It was in her persona and her philosophy that she was bringing out where, and she was huge influence, absolutely huge. It does seem like, I think like it must have been sort of her personality, her persona and energy, because it's so easy to sort of do it satirically oh, and stuff. So yes. Like, and in most, I think most of these silent films you're referencing, I kind of get the sense that it's like they threw a girl up there and were like, you're the dancing girl, do some stuff. Well, that or they're like making fun of it. They're actually making right. fun of it. And I have pointed that out to you in a few films. Right. Like, oh, that's it. That That's what they're doing there. Right. Yeah. And you, you see it a lot in, the, in these old films, you so frequently. And uh, Isadora, like Mary Dempsey, was a free spirit. I think that was the time where that came from. Uh, was a free spirit. She didn't believe in these institutionalized schools of crushing the spirit and crushing their creativity. And the thing is, even though they're kind of like the hippies of their time, and even though they seem kind of wacky, they weren't wrong. No. Because that was what was happening. Yeah. So they were seeking a way to create a new way of nurturing the spirit of the soul. And I think, correct me if I'm wrong, but they were all pretty well educated and maybe from the upper classes. And so there's also kind of like a literati element to it. Well, they were very well educated. I wouldn't say upper classes because Isadora was not from upper classes. Mm. Her parents were kind of artistic and, you know, they didn't have hardly any money. But yet, of course, these people, especially they, a lot of them were women, were very intelligent. Mm -hmm. I think that maybe the person that you're thinking of who was kind of in that ilk was Rudolph Valentino's wife, Natasha Rombova. Yeah. She was from the upper class. Yeah. Yeah. But certainly Isadora was not. And she she struggled a lot. And she ended up making a lot of money and spent, spending a lot of money. These are not people who were creating 401ks or anything like right. in their future. So anyway, Mary Dempsey met Isadora and they became the closest of friends. So very close. And Isadora's philosophies and ideas totally influenced Mary and, and probably drove a lot of her conduct and behavior. Isadora herself had two children 
and those two children weren't sent to school in the same way and had the same kind of acculturation that Preston Sturgis did. I'm just going to do a quick aside here. I, I hate, I know, I, well, you don't hate it, but <laughs> no, of course not. I'll do it anyway. But Isadora, I'm just going to go off on the Isadora train. So Isadora, real quick, she had an amazing performing career. She had an amazing, and she was also a woman who was known for uh, having free love and you know wanting to mm. choose her partners, of course, and that also made her very outre. But because of her power as a performer, she did end up being accepted, being you know invited to garden parties and being part of society and so forth. And unfortunately, she had the most tragic, well, not the most tragic life, but one of the most tragic lives, in that she had these two beautiful little children. They were pretty small children. And she was in, living in Paris. The car was parked that she had been in. She had very bad luck with cars. And she and her, and the, well, it was a husband, but anyway, the man she was with, they were out of the car doing something. The brake on the car failed. The car rolled backward into the Seine River and the children drowned. Oh, that's so sad. Isn't that terrible? Yeah. Oh, and of course that just devastated her. Yeah. And she was growing older and heavier and, you know, as one does. Things that are difficult for Let, performers. Less yeah. life, you know, not so beautiful. And then what happened was, and this is so, I'll just say it now because it doesn't really fall into Preston Sturgis's story. I mean, it wasn't impactful on him. But Mary Dempsey, who later changed her name to Deste, was very close with her. And she became a designer. She created a cosmetic company and she became a clothing designer and she made this beautiful hand uh, embroidered shawl, that, a big, a big, very fancy, flowing, dramatic shawl for her friend Isadora, and gave it to her. And one day, when Isadora was riding in a car, in those days they had like these, it was a fancy car that had spoked wheels, and the scarf was just flying out behind her, and it caught in the spoke and broke her neck and killed her. Oh my God! I, I mean. Can you imagine being Mary? Also? I know. That's what I'm thinking. Oh my God. Yeah. Because, I mean, she loved Isadora. They were very close. Yeah, oh my so God. Awful. They were total best friends. I So it's funny to me because I've heard that story about Isadora Duncan and how she got choked by the scarf um, since I was pretty young. Yeah, because like, I like to tell you that every year. At yeah. Least. <laughs> And so it's funny to now, a couple of decades later, finally pick this random, you know, sort of random director mm -hmm. to watch his movies, and then it turns out that his mom is the one that knitted the <laughs> shawl that broke his door down his neck. <laughs> exactly. It's such a, such a weird connection, isn't it? Yeah. So anyway, getting back to Preston now and his mom. So Mary went to Paris and she met Isadora and she was like all over the place. So this happened frequently. So Preston got put into a boarding school. And then... So she did finally start sending him to school. Yeah, well, because she didn't want to have to... What was she going to do with him, yeah. right? Now she didn't have a household and all that stuff. So then, you know, so then he got put in... A different one and then a different one and moved around and, and then if she wanted to go here then he went there and she put him in a school and who knows what her logic was and sometimes she put him in a school and then she'd go away to another country who knows that but he went to a lot of different schools and he had a hard time yeah and he was not like particularly well behaved as you would imagine that he wouldn't be uh, so he is good looking at least so you think <laughs> that he is helps yeah i think so. at least from the one picture on wikipedia i think he's 
decently good looking. Oh he's, oh, he's decently good looking. I don't think he's good looking myself. He's not my taste. Yeah. But he was considered good looking. He was yeah. tall and, and uh, manly. Yeah. And so definitely. Uh, so anyway, he um, while she was over in Europe and putting this press in all these schools, she decided that the, that the name Dempsey wasn't high class enough. So she changed her name to Deste. D. Apostrophe. E-S-T-E. And that's the name of European nobility. And what happened was, is she opened this this cosmetic company. Basically, she had gotten these, this cosmetic formula from a... It was somebody from the East. It was like the Middle East or Turkey or something. But there was this formula they used on women's skin, and it was very, very effective. So she just like says, hey, give me that formula. She just takes it uh-huh. and makes it. And makes and makes this product that's her her uh, uh, house of Deste. Uh, Des and so she ran it. it was very successful, but in in Paris. And but what happened is the family Deste, who were the nobility, that name belonged to them, and they sued her. So what she had to do was she had to end up changing it, and she changed it to um, D apostrophe E S T I instead of E, and became the house of Deste. <laughs> And um, and so basically, uh, Preston was dragged along, and he was dragged back to America, and blah blah blah. All that's not interesting. It's just he get he got drug all over. So then finally, when he was about sixteen, uh, she decided, okay, you've had enough school, uh, time for you to go to work. And so she sent the sixteen-year-old to Deauville, which is in France, uh, where she had a branch of her of her. Um, cosmetic company and sent him there to manage the store (laughs) you know it's so interesting how um a lot of his movies involve like working in a corporate environment in some way or a number of them do and so and i'm like realizing now that that he had that experience that definitely influenced that thing in his movies yes so much which is so funny because it that's also such a a working class American experience. So like I, in, that's another thing that makes me feel like his films are kind of populist, this sort of like talking about corporate life in America. Oh yeah, they but, are. But his route to doing that was so weird and yeah, unusual. Because he was both a worker who was exploited by his mother, yet he was also a manager right. at the same time. <laughs> yeah. So, and he makes, and we'll see in his films, both sides come up. Yeah. And he makes, he's always on the side of the worker. Yeah. But he makes, really makes fun of the capitalists yeah. big time. And so uh, he did that for a fairly short time, and he was successful, which is amazing. It's this 15, 16-year-old. Uh, but then 1914 hit, and what we know happened in 1914 was the beginning of World War I. And uh, his mother was worried that he would try to enlist, even though he wasn't a French citizen. You know, maybe he would want adventure or to get away, or he believed he loved France. I don't know why he would want to enlist in a war, but young men really dug that at the time. I mean, they were going off in marching columns together, cheering, and and women were throwing flowers at them, and they just felt like, oh, this is going to be a grand adventure. Oh, boy. Yeah. Yeah, were they in for it? They were really in Let for me it. just point out that this is also a subject matter That's that true. shows up in his films a lot, is people wanting to enlist in the army and then not being able to for some right. reason. That's a good point. That's a very good point. Uh, in this case, it was his mommy, and good for her, because World War One was the most horrific thing ever. So what she did in order to keep him from doing that is she sent him back to the United States, because the United States did not enter World War One until uh, 1917. So it would make it harder for him to enlist. 
but he did end up after he was back and he was older and after the u.s entered the war he did enlist in the u.s air force which would be pretty you know exciting for young men at the time because this is the first war where they really used airplanes right and he uh, was training and the war ended before he finished training <laughs> so this is where we begin to see an aspect of his his personality it's very interesting is he was really so creative that he was also an inventor. He had thought about being an engineer. Various things stood in the way, such as money, such as... It seemed to me that he had ADHD because throughout his life, people remarked he he couldn't sit down and concentrate on something. And when he did concentrate, he had to be moving. He had to be walking. He had to be talking. That uh, Sitting down and typing something up and writing was very hard for him. He really, really had a hard time with that. He was great with ideas and spewing them out and coming up with things. And then, then he didn't follow through. Or he'd put together an engine and he wouldn't get the patent. And he wouldn't market it. He just wasn't able to do that. He did invent an engine while he was in the Air Force and came up with this great idea. And then he later found out that Lewis Chevrolet of the Chevrolet company had already invented that engine. Ah, shoot. But he came up with it independently. That's so interesting. That's really amazing that he, he saw it and he came up with it. So that Which, let me point out, he has a film in his filmography where he talks about the guy that started using ether in dental care as a painkiller. And that guy had this whole thing with patents and how he never got recognized and stuff like that. So yeah, there's right. another one. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> this he, is so funny to me. He had really pulled out uh, material from his life. Yeah. Well, it's a good thing his life was so interesting, yeah. right? So he spent a lot of time trying to figure out what to do, what he should be. I mean, it wasn't just like, oh, I'm a writer. I want to write. And you know, when he did write things at this point, it was just hard for him to do. And it really wasn't that good. So eventually he did get around to it. But so he decided that he would become an entrepreneur since he could make money that way and make a living. And his mother already had created this company, the House of Deste. And basically she was in Europe. The war had destroyed the business. So he established it in the U.S., well, now that the war was over, he would get supplies from Europe, and he'd bring them over, and he had a shop, and he was he was pretty successful. Again, his inventing bug kicked in, and he invented a kiss-proof lipstick. Interesting. So it's a kind of lipstick that really you could kiss, and it wouldn't smear. That's useful. Very useful. I have that kind of lipstick today. Yeah. Who it's, knows? It might be based on that very technology. It's quite possible. So he invented this, which I think is amazing, and very, very successful shop. And he had just all kinds of like celebrity customers, just everybody from A to Z. And one of the most famous is a woman named Evelyn Nesbitt. Do you know who she is? No. Evelyn Nesbitt was a showgirl. Really, really beautiful. If you look her up, really beautiful and very young. Trigger warning, I am going to talk about sexual assault here. She was deflowered against her will as a young young woman by an architect named Stanford White. He was kind of known as the ladies' man. And, and in those days, that was okay. And so anyway, she later, a year or two later, very soon after that probably, she married a guy named Harry Thaw. And a Thaw was a super rich guy and super crazy. And when she got into the uh, marriage with him, he was one of those guys, possessive, abusive, blaming, jealous. So uh, he found out about thought about uh, White and he went up into uh, this uh, very famous restaurant in front of everybody and shot White dead. Wow. Yeah. And then there was a very famous trial and Evelyn just really wanted to get out. She wanted to get away. She eventually did. But um, 
it's a shame because it's one of those things where beauty can be such a curse. She was so beautiful. She was actually, there's a very famous imagery of the Gibson girl, Charles Dana Gibson, actually to give him his full name. He painted uh, these very famous paintings of this very beautiful woman, kind of with a loose pompadour, wearing a shirt waist. That was Evelyn Nesbitt, and she was the, the model. model for the Gibson girl. So anyway, first love affair of uh, John Barrymore, by the way. She was very in love with John Barrymore before he was anybody, when he was still a young artist knocking about town. But back to the main story. So anyway, uh, she was one of Preston Sturgis's customers, and she came in and got her makeup there and her kiss-proof lipstick and all that stuff. While he was running the House of Deste in New York, he was still trying to figure out what to do. I don't. He wasn't really truly satisfied. He hated culture. Yet he kind of wanted to be a writer and, and was a creative. And I think that that was one of the things maybe that roadblocked him for a while in being able to break through because he had this, he didn't want the things that his mother had foisted on him as he felt. But while he was uh, doing this work, he ran across the writing of H.L. Mencken. Now, H.L. Mencken, again, another really, really important person of this period. He was a journalist and a writer and an essayist, and he was extremely popular and extremely famous. And so Preston ran across his work, and he was really influenced by the tone. H.L. Mencken was very snappy and sharp with his style, and he did a lot of cultural commentary and this penetrating social satire in his writing. And I don't think the writing really holds up today, and some of his viewpoints maybe are not the best, but... There was that, that sharp, snappy style that really became so popular in Hollywood and that uh, Sturgis, he just perfected to a, to a very high level. And so this is kind of where he got that idea from, of how to write dialogue and how to focus his films. Here's, okay, here's just one sentence from Mencken that I thought kind of gives you that flavor. On some great and glorious day, the plain folks of the land will reach their heart's desire at last. And the White House will be adorned by a downright moron. (laughs) So Mencken really took American populace to task and their gullibility around politicians and the things they're told and the lies they're told and how they'll just gulp them down and believe them. So also at this time, his mother married five times. Preston married only four times. So he married his first wife, Estelle de Wolf Mudge. Mudge. In 1923. So he's 25. He's still knocking about, doesn't know what he wants to do. She, Estelle, um, came from a wealthy family, quite a wealthy family. So she was used to nice things and the best of things. And she did have some money, but her family cut her off. So she just had her, like, her independent money that she'd been inherited um, because they didn't like Preston (laughs) basically so they came up with a plan and in order to make good income and have their heart's desire in terms of material things they took her the money that she had the few the thousand few thousand dollars she had and they expanded the business so, and, and it was going well. It was, it was going pretty successfully. Because up to this point, he'd been making so little money out of the business that Solomon had been giving him an allowance. Mm. Which, that's pretty rough, right? And so they, they started building the business. They put the money in. It was starting to grow. And then Mary, who had been in Europe and said, I don't want anything to do with this 
business anymore. I don't want to do this. Um, came back to the U.S. She didn't have any money. She said, oh, I want my business back. Uh-huh. And so she took over again. Because wow. it had always been just, it wasn't like she signed it over to him. She yeah. just said, okay, you take it. So that kind of pulled that out So for, for in terms of his earning. So Estelle was the one who still, she still had some money. So she, things didn't cost a whole lot of money back then in certain ways. So she bought this little estate that they lived on nicely around in New York. And it was a really nice place. And uh, since Mary came back and took over, he didn't have a job. So he just kind of hung around all day and he made inventions, tinkered with inventions and projects, but he never followed through with any of them. He just kind of lazed around. So ultimately, Estelle got sick of this. She left for Paris. Gee, <laughs> left for Paris. Hmm, interesting. Well, basically, her dream was to become a singer. So she wanted to go, and at that time, you had to go to Europe if you really wanted to be a great like opera singer and get great training. So she goes there. And the reason she decided to pursue her career and just left was that she just couldn't stand him anymore. This is a pattern uh, that was escalating with Sturgis over his entire life with women in that he was very demanding. When he was courting women, he was amazing. He was tall, he was handsome, he was attentive. He shared his feelings, he shared thoughts. They did projects together, they went places together, they had fun, they went dancing, da da da. And as soon as he had them, then it became they were there to be there as his minion to sit by him and to be there when he wanted things, to get him a sandwich, to get him a drink, you know, to take care of him, to take care of everything, not to demand, not to ask anything. And then he had the right to go out and party. And I don't know if he did this with Estelle, but he certainly did with all his other wives, have other women when he had promised to be faithful. I mean, it wasn't like they had an open marriage. And also at the same time, he was very jealous. So if his wife smiled at somebody, or a man just looked at her and she was just sitting there, he would fly into a really angry, jealous rage, which ultimately, as he got older, ended up sometimes in physical violence, but certainly in a lot of emotional violence. So at this point, I think it's probably the beginnings of the pattern, but he was just negligent and demanding and she was just fed up. And he wasn't doing anything with his life other than he was just pottering around, you know? So she left and was just sick of it. And he was shocked. He was shocked. He couldn't believe it. Because from his point of view, everything was hunky-dory. Everything was groovy. Yeah, because you can, you can demand everything you want. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you know, it, it didn't even occur to him that he was being insensitive to his partner or being mean or cruel oh, or anything. Shit. I know, he totally was. But he was shocked and he was also devastated. So this pattern also had an effect on him in that she left him. And so now he's been betrayed and she was his one true love and, you know, on and on and on. So that became sort of an idea in his mind that he never really examined or figured out where he was at fault here. And it, it's so interesting because with his four wives and he also had a live-in girlfriend and even he had a couple of live-in girlfriends. It always started out with true love. And all, even all his friends would say, oh, it was the real thing. It was the real thing. They were so in love. And he was just so entrancing, of course. The women were amazed, you know, and really in love with him. And as he got older, the women stayed the same age. So the age gap began to grow. The right. women were always in their 20s. He really was regressed to that point in his life. Do you think his biological dad, his or Mary's original husband, was he probably a really abusive kind of guy? Or? Yeah. Yeah, he was. Yeah, so basically that that's the same pattern he had with 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 all of his the women he was close to. Uh, I mean, he had women friends that 
was fine. He got along yeah. very, very well with them. So, you know, he just did whatever he wanted, and he had all of the affairs he wanted, and he was not uh, caring or cognizant of their feelings. Almost, It's almost like the anger he had at his mother would begin to surface after yeah. he... he Locked him down, yeah, yeah, once they became obligation. Yeah, and, and yet also his insecurity mm-hmm. that he had and the instability with his mother is that he was possessively jealous no matter what he did. Right. And so, like, for example, with his fourth wife said that one time a waiter made her laugh at a restaurant. He went into a black rage for three days, wouldn't speak to her, was angry. It just really seemed pretty terrible. So, Dude. But it's so funny because for most of his movies the best movies, the women are amazing that he writes. Yeah, so this is the, the complication there, right? Is obviously he had like a real respect for some women and gave them great parts in his movies. Such as Barbara Stanwyck. The character that he wrote for <laughs> Veronica Lake in Sullivan's Travels too. Exactly, exactly. So that's, that's what's so very, very interesting. So once his wife left him, he had uh, no money because he hadn't been working, and so he went back to being supported by his father. And he just still didn't know what to do. I mean, he was really, really adrift. Then what happened is in 1928, so now we're looking at he's 30, right? His appendix ruptured. He got peritonitis. When I'm studying people this period, I'm going, every flippin' person died of peritonitis. Because uh, remember, at this time in the 20s, they didn't have antibiotics. Yeah. They had sulfa drugs, which could help with certain things. But this systemic infections I mean it's sepsis which is what peritonitis is they didn't have and if unless you have unless you just had a system that could bounce back that's what Rudy died of that's what Houdini died of and there was somebody else I can't remember who it was it was a woman I was looking at the same period of time appendix burst died of peritonitis really amazing anyway because of this he's obviously he survived because he went on to make movies he spent six weeks in the hospital recovering from this and he couldn't get out of bed and so what happened is then his father came and visited him and pe- friends came and they brought him books and magazines and a lot of stuff to read. And one book by chance that came across his, his uh, interest was called A Study of the Drama by James Matthew Brander. And this guy, he was a professor at Columbia University. He basically wrote what the elements of successful drama, and we talk about drama that's tragedy and comedy, kind of the classical term of drama and Sturgis read it and it just you know it's one of those things where you go revelation amazing and for the rest of his life all his work was based on these tenets Hmm. that he read in this book and it just was an enduring influence Brander said things like situations don't create comedy characters create comedy so you create the character and then it's the character Within a situation, obviously, because situations happen, but it's the character that creates the comedy. So it flows through the character's motivation and, and, and how they would respond. And who and, they are as people and that kind of thing. And you see that mm-hmm. all the time in his things. It isn't like you take some guy who's just a regular, doesn't have anything in particular, and you just put him in a situation and all of a sudden he's acting and it's comedy. Now that might be fine. Like, for example, the Keystone Cops. That was in the silent era. They were cops with a K. Uh-huh. Do you, I don't know if you know Keystone Cops. Okay. They were a group of men, comics, who they would be cops and they would be, they were like clowns. It'd be like a big car and they'd all be hanging on and they're going to, you know, do something and they've got, they're waving their batons and they're wearing the hats and they're running around and falling down and blah, blah, blah. It's one of those things where you've got a comic actor 
who you just throw them in a situation and they're falling down and this and that's happening and that's the comedy. Versus let's say, for an analogy, you take a Charlie Chaplin. Charlie Chaplin, this is a person. It's a human being with feelings and emotions and you know who they are. And then they're in a situation and that's your comedy. Even Buster Keaton, who is pretty amazing, he establishes the character of his creation first. Mm -hmm. And so Brander's uh, point of view just, you know, for all the really great enduring works where it's not just somebody slipping on a banana peel. Yeah. It holds up. I should have said he was ill in Chicago. The appendix burst when he was visiting his dad. So when he recovers, and after having read this book, he goes to New York. And, you know, he's trying to do some writing at the time, but he was really, again, just janking around, trying to figure out what to do, trying to get money somehow. And he was dating this woman, and she was a real feisty person. And he actually kind of liked that at this point. And again, he didn't have her locked down, so I don't think he was too bad with her. But they would fight frequently. And so they got into a fight and they would say really, really mean things to each other. So finally she uh, was just so irritated with him. And she was a writer. She was an actress, actually, sorry. But she does say to him, knowing that he wants to be a writer, she says, oh, well, I'm writing a play and I was just stringing you along because I was just trying to see how boring and feckless a man can be so that I can write uh, this character in my play. Oh, <laughs> really? Woo! And of course that really got to him. He's just like, basically she said, you're just research to me, buddy. Yeah. Like, eh. Plus she said she was writing a play and he had been trying to write a play, right? So he decided, I'm going to beat you. I'm going to write my play and get it produced before you get yours done. He didn't <laughs> tell her this, but that's what he decided to do. So basically what he did was, he wrote a play called The Guinea Pig in 1929. And it was about a woman who was dating a man so she could sleep with him and get a taste of life to put in her play. Uh-huh. So basically, she was dating a man because he was research. Yeah. But in this case, so she could have sex and so she would know what it was like and be able to like put that, that knowledge into her play. And of course, at the end of the play, they actually fall in love and he finds out. And, I mean, it's the classic thing. So... He really worked hard. He actually followed through a lot. There was enough motivation. <laughs> yeah, and he got it done. He not only got it done, but then he went out and he tried to find a producer. And he did all these things to try to get this thing shown, which was easier for him because it was talking to people. It wasn't writing or right. you know, trying to focus in a way. So he got this thing played uh, out of town at, at a community theater. So there's no money involved at all. But he, he managed to find a producer who helped him get enough money just to, like, buy the props. And it was like, it went okay. So then somebody saw it, and then they, it actually went on Broadway for, like, a week. And it got good notices, actually. Didn't make any money. But now that he had had a play produced with good notices in his book, and the producer said, well, now, next play, if it's good, you really actually have a chance to get it produced. And so after he had that uh, small little play done with, and he had good notices for it, the producer he was working with said, now I can probably get backers because now you've got a track record on Broadway and somebody might actually give you some money. So he wrote this uh, other play called Strictly Dishonorable and it was just a light as air comedy. It took place in a speakeasy, which was very, you know, of the moment and lots of 
you know, lots of dialogue, uh, the characters, and there's a little bit of a love story, love triangle in there, uh, but very light. And um, the term, the title came from this little, um, little snappy dialogue he had with this woman one time he was trying to get her to sleep with him. And she says, hey, what are your, what are your intentions? And he said, strictly dishonorable. Good one-liner. Typical, typical of his snappy dialogue, right? So he writes this play, and it's good. It's, you know, it's really got promise, but, you know, the first draft or the first, it's not always perfect. And he took it to the producer, and the producer says, oh, yeah, this is really good, but it needs some work. And he's like, he was just absolutely insufferable. He goes, no, it doesn't. Don't change a word. It's perfect. No, 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 it's absolutely perfect. Because his imposter syndrome was kicking in. And his ego had inflated to this huge size. And and inflated ego is a very sensitive ego because it's covering over all his insecurities. And he is not going to change a word. It just sounds like he was absolutely an ass. So they finally get a director who's willing to work with him. And this is a very experienced director. And the director demands that a lot of changes be made. And he made him make changes. And while they were running the rehearsals, he made him polish the dialogue and make it better and so forth. And Sturgis was so sure that his play had been absolutely perfect no matter what. He, he said it was ruined. It just ruined when it, when it was uh, uh, going to premiere. He didn't even go to the premiere. Hmm. He went down the street to a bar getting ready to have it absolutely trashed. Uh-huh. And it ended up being a huge hit. It ended up being one of the biggest hits in the 1920s. Wow. And it ran for a long time. He made so much money. It was so successful. But, of course, he couldn't uh, admit that he had been wrong. Right. right? He just admitted he was a genius, right? right? <laughs> and um, so so after that, he swore, once he made started making money, he, says, he swore he would never take more any more money from his father, no matter what. He paid off all his debts, of which he had a lot. And he started sending his mother money because her business folded and <laughs> she needed money. So that was nice of him. To do that, and he decided he was going to be very responsible and put money away and invest it, and you know, so he could build some capital, uh, build a nest egg. And so he took fifteen thousand bucks and gave it to his dad and said, "Okay, put it in the stock market for me," because his dad was a stockbroker. And then in late nineteen twenty nine, what happened? Black Friday. Black Friday happened. Black Friday happened, and it was a nightmare for it. Stock market completely crashed. It caused riots and food riots across the world. And the yeah. run on the banks, you know, and yeah, across the world, not just in the U.S. They called a bank holiday. They had to close the banks because there wasn't any, enough money to give to everybody. And bread lines. They said there was probably, they estimated about 25% unemployment. And that's only the the people who had been working. Right. So there were all the people who needed, you know, like women in particular who were unemployed. So essentially, um, he lost all his money. And at that point, he decided, well, then forget that. I'm go-. He just pretty much used it as an excuse to become wild with his money and just spend it on whatever he wanted and just spend, spend, spend. Extravagant. But he, yeah, extravagance. And he ended up, though, spending more than he earned ultimately, not just spending what he earned. Even though the play had been doing really, really well and it was made into a movie in 1931, but this is 1929, so it wasn't 1931 yet. So uh, the play ultimately folded and, and he didn't have any money, so he had to get money somewhere. 
Um, and it was really, really rough. And so he ended up going, okay, I can't get another play produced because no money. The only place in the entertainment for writers is Hollywood. So the place that's Hollywood started making a lot of money. Bit his tongue, said, okay, I'm gonna go to Hollywood. I hate it. It's, you know, it's lowbrow, it's not, you know, it's not Broadway. So he went and he ended up getting a, a gig as a dialogue writer because this is 1929. So remember sound, very first uh, important sound movie was 1926. So we're still transitioning into sound and they're trying to figure out how people should talk and what should happen and what it should sound like. And he's an ace dialogue writer. So he got a job for $1,000 a week as a dialogue writer, which is so much money back then. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that's so much that's money. That's so much money. I know. I mean, it's not it's not bad today. No, that's way more than I make a week. Well, let's see. In 1929, it's about $16,000 a month. <laughs> a oh week. Oh my God. A, a week. week. Oh my God. I know. So much money. I mean, that that's the place was crazy. But anyway, so, he's, so he started making... Um, thousand dollars a week on contract so basically he was not it wasn't like a job where he just made that every day it was like while he was working while they gave him well he was a very fast dialogue writer so they gave him this book you know write the dialogue for it and he was so fast he finished it in two weeks it makes two thousand dollars a lot of money well he later found out that the standard amount of time to do that kind of adaptation was more like 10 weeks wow (laughs) so he left a lot of money on the table so now he's in hollywood he's driven into the arms of hollywood by the great depression and um, basically, uh, I think that's where we'll end today. I think we've, we've gotten pressed into Hollywood. Hopefully, we will finish up. I don't know. I always feel like people are going, there's too many episodes for these <laughs> these people. But I, fi- I find them fascinating, and I try to make them only as long as there's good material to fill them. Yeah. So. It's there's if there's a lot there, there's a lot there. Yeah. So, so. We'll, we'll take up next time with Preston in Hollywood. Uh, beginning as a writer, and what he wants to do is become a a writer-director because he does not like other people taking his writing and monkeying around with it, putting it into the writing of other people and so forth. So we'll talk a little bit about the Hollywood system and how writing worked and how the studios uh, structured it so they could keep control of everything and didn't have to give any control away, and how Preston was trying to create a career for himself where he could have some control over his work. And if you're lucky, we'll touch on one of his major works, his best films. Well, hopefully more than one. We'll see. (laughs) Bye. Bye Bye-bye. If you want to get in touch with us, shoot us out an email to foiblespodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. Grand cheese sandwich.